Well, we're going to do things a little bit different than what I usually do, simply because the text that we're going to be looking at is a huge text. And uh, I think we're just going to kind of unfold it and look at it and think about it. But I want to read one passage out of the text, and it's Esther chapter 4. And that's right after Ezra and Nehemiah and before the Psalms and Proverbs. And so anyway, Esther is kind of a special book. And uh, I think that if you start digging into it, you get addicted to it. Uh, it's a beautiful book. It's a, it's a great book. And so I'm going to read really what would be the whole chapter of chapter 4. Now, this is talking about different people. There's people that are in here are important. There's a guy named Mordecai, and he has some kind of a small-time government job in the kingdom of the Medo-Persians. And uh, he, has a, uh, he also had an adopted daughter who happened to be the queen. And so <clears throat> he found out that there was a, a, a plot to get rid of the Jews. And when Mord Mordecai learned all of that, that it had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called, then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to tend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was that was said and why it was. Mordecai went out to, Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I have now been called to come to the king for these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them this to, re to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. And this was, Mar this was Esther's reply. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do and then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Wow. 
you know, I don't know if you're a J. Frank Doby fan. If any, any, anybody here read any of his work? Mostly had to do with Texas folklore, and uh, it's pretty good stuff. You can buy a book of it, and you can leave it out where the grandkids can see it because it doesn't have any dirty words in it or anything like that. But it's, it's really a good book. But anyway, he talks about storytelling, and I'm the kind of a guy that I love a good storyteller, and I love a good story. I know there was a guy that I worked with years ago whenever I was halfway through college. My dad was uh, worked at a packing house, and, and so during the summers I would go and work in the packing house too. I was one of the few white employees that they had, and there was one guy, his name was Ned Gatlin. Ned was a pretty good-sized man. He had worked there longer than anybody else had, and it just never seemed to, to bring his spirit down. And he could tell you stories that nobody else would know about. And I would just sit there fixed on him whenever we had a break, listening to him tell me one tale after another, and we'd both laugh our heads off. But this is what J. Frank Doby wrote in his forward to one of his books titled, I'll Tell You a Tale. He said, I'm not sure that a good tale isn't better for human beings than most of what passes for social science. I don't know. At the same time, I am sure that the rhyme of the ancient mariner has done mankind more good than all the discourses on omniscience that Samuel Taylor Coleridge ever uttered. Sometimes I wish I had never tried to do anything but tell tales, sometimes only. There is a reason that a good story can do this. A good story can communicate a truth far better than any just dry only the facts, ma'am, discourse on law and regulations. Just consider much of what Jesus' method was in, t in telling people about the good news that he was bringing into the world. Remember, whenever you ask someone, can you tell me something about things that Jesus said? Well, they'll come up with, well, you know, the prodigal son or the house that was built on the rock or the man whom God called a fool. Matter of fact, I preached about him just the other day. These stories, though, most stories are, are, are natural tales of fiction, but many stories are as true as the day is long, and that is the case with Esther. The book of Esther is one of those tales, but it's unique among all the books of the Bible. Did you know this, that God is never mentioned by name in the whole book of Esther? Never. You just have to, but he, he may never be mentioned by name, but I'll tell you something, his fingerprints are all over it. All you have to do is just look because he is behind the scenes working out his good pleasure among and for his people. And so what I'm going to do is we're going to kind of go through most of it and we're going to use a paraphrase that I came up with some time ago. But here it is. It starts off by telling us these events happened during the era of Xerxes I. Now, if you have a King James Version in particular, you will see that he's not called Xerxes. He's called Ahasuerus. And one of them has to do with his Greek name. Another one has to do with his Persian name. Anyway, he ruled the kingdom, had 127 provinces in it. And uh, it, was, uh, it stretched from the Indus Valley to, the e to Ethiopia. It was huge. During that period, King Xerxes ruled from his royal throne, which was in the capital city of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he hadn't been the king for too long, he put on this big festival. And when he put on a festival, I mean he knew how to put the big pot in the little one. And they had all of the dignitaries of the Medo-Persian Empire to show up. And they went on and, and partied for 180 days. 
When that was over with, then another festive celebration took place, and this was for everyone who was found in the capital city of Susa. It was from the most important officials to the lowest peasants. And this feast lasted for seven days and was held in the garden courtyard of the royal palace. All the, all the decorations and everything were the very best that money could buy. Drinks were served in goblets of gold, and no two golds were the same. Everything was different. And wine was served from the royal cellars, and it was served unsparingly. The drinking of wine followed one rule, and that rule was no pressure. In other words, no one was supposed to be pressured to drink a lot, or no one was supposed to be pressured to drink very little or any at all. And so that, everybody was having a great time. And in addition to this, the king's wife, Queen Vashti, she hosted a celebration for the women in the royal palace of the king of King Xerxes. That would be just like the first lady of the United States taking women on a tour of the White House. Well, on the seventh day, well, the wine had kind of put the king in a very, very happy mood. And so he decided that he wanted to let everybody see what a good-looking gal he was married to. And so he sent a message by a messenger to Vashti and said, you know, the king wants you to dress up in your prettiest dress and come out here and so that way everybody can see you. And you know what she said? She basically told him that he could go butt a stump, that she wasn't coming over there to do what he wanted her to do. Well, that was not only embarrassing to him in front of all of, his, all of the people there in the town, but it also made him very angry. And evidently, he had a tendency to get angry, and he was not the kind of a man that you wanted to be around when he did get angry. But before he did something rash, which was kind of novel for him, he decided to talk to his advisors, who primarily were astrologers. And he said, what should I do about this? Well, one of these astrologers said, well, we don't have any laws about this, but here's what I would suggest that we do. You need to understand, Queen Vashti has not wronged just the king. Indeed, he has wronged all the government officials and all the people who live in the provinces of King Xerxes. The news about what the king did will get out to all the wives in the kingdom, and they'll begin to regard their husbands with contempt. Yeah, they will say, well, when King Xerxes sent his servants to bring Queen Vashti before him, she wouldn't come. This very day, all the noble women of the Medo-Persian Empire who have heard about what the queen did will do the same with their husbands, that is, all the king's officers, and we will have to deal with no end of their contempt and their bad tempers. So, if it's agreeable with the king, may he issue a royal proclamation and let it be written in the law code of the Medo-Persian Empire so that it cannot be revoked. And let this order state that Vashti shall never be able to enter the presence of the king again and that the king will give her royal status to another woman, one better than she is. Thus, whenever the king pronounces this edict and it is published throughout the vast kingdom, all wives will honor their husbands from the highest to the lowest in society. What power. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that's not the way it is at my house. <laughs> well, anyway, so the, but the king, he liked that, and the rest of the nobles liked that, and so they did what, and so uh, the king did what this advisor suggested. He sent out letters and told everybody about it, and those letters said that a husband should be the ruler of his own household, period. Well, so after these things were done, time went by, and King Xerxes got to missing Vashti, and he was kind of had the mully grubs about it, evidently. 
He knew that we couldn't change that. The law was the law. And so the king's attending service, they, they kind of felt bad for the king. And so they said, you know, why don't we get you another wife? You know, let's search throughout the kingdom and get the prettiest young maidens that we can find. And, uh, and then we'll turn them over to the head of the harem, I guess you could call it that, the one that oversees wi women, and let him make sure they receive all the proper beauty treatments. And these beauty treatments meant that they rubbed themselves down with smell it good smelling oil. You know, they got the Chanel number five out. And this went on for about a year. And then they would, you know, send one girl in to, and if the king liked her, she would be the new queen. That was how it was going to be done. Now, we, we, we meet another character in here. Here's a guy that all kind of pops up on the radar, and his name was Mordecai. Mordecai had some kind of a menial government job because most of the time when you see him, he's somewhere around the courtyard of the palace. And so Mordecai heard that there was a, a search going on for a new queen. And he thought to himself, well, you know, I've got a cousin whom I have adopted because her parents had passed away. He said, I ought to enter her in the contest. And so he did. Well, whenever she showed up, the guy that was taking care of all the girls that were coming in, evidently she popped his eyes out. You know, she was something to see. And so he gave her the best of everything. And whenever the time came uh, for her beauty treatments, he gave her the best. And, but... She never did tell them who she really was. She didn't tell them that she was Jewish because there was some animosity uh, aimed toward the Jewish people back then. And so, anyway, so, but anyway, they accepted her in there. Mordecai kept a close ear to the ground to see what would be going on with her. And finally, whenever it came that young, uh, finally, whenever her time came, they got her fixed up, and she went in there, and whenever King Xerxes saw her, his eyes popped out. And he just decided that, that we don't need to search for another woman. He said, this is the one that I like. And so the king held a big banquet for all of his nobles and the officials in honor of Esther, and he proclaimed that day a holiday in all the provinces, and he gave away gifts to the people. The gift was wheat. Hmm. That was not quite what he did a few years earlier. Well, anyway... As for Esther, she, was, she still didn't tell anyone that she was Jewish. Everything was going on okay. And then a very important turn of events. Mordecai was occupying his seat at the king's gate. And two guys, Big Than and Parish, were two of the king's officials who were part of the group that, that uh, you know, protected him. They're kind of like our secret service. Anyway, they got a little crooked, and they decided to pull off a plot, and they were going to assassinate King Xerxes. Well, Mordecai told, got the word to the king, and the king got a hold of them, and guess what? Well, they were summarily hanged. Probably they were impaled upon a stake. That was kind of their idea of hanging. Well, anyway, sometime later, King Xerxes promoted a guy named Haman. He was the son of Hamadatha, and he was an Agag guy. Now, if you can go back, you see there was bad blood between his ancestors and the Jewish ancestors that went back to the time of Moses. And anyway, but 
that Haman was supposed to be, you know, the, the big shot right under the king. And any time that Haman went walked by, if you were a member of that kingdom, you were supposed to bow down to the ground. And that made him feel good. You know, we love it whenever people show us great respect, and that was the way he was. He felt like he was a big man on the block. Well, the problem was, was that Mordecai was not going to bow down before him. And this went on day after day after day after day, and people finally came to Mordecai and said, why aren't you bowing down before the king? He said, because I'm Jewish, and I don't bow down and worship any man. That took care of that. And so... Pretty soon, Haman noticed that Mordecai wasn't bowing down, and he decided that he was going to get rid of him. But he scoffed at the idea of just murdering Mordecai. He decided he would kill all the Jews in the kingdom. He would pull this off. This would be a genocide that would have made Hitler stuff look puny. So he got all of this together. He goes up to the king, and he informs the king. He said, listen, there is a race of people in our in our great kingdom and their laws are different from our laws and they're just they don't follow the king's rules and it's just in the best interest if we killed all of them and so he said so if this seems good to the king let an edict be written for them to be destroyed I'm going to put 10,000 talents of silver in the hands of stewards to put in the royal treasury if you'll let me do this now that was a lot of silver a talent weighed I think you know about 75 pounds and so he was talking about some pretty serious chazo. And so then the king, he removed the signet ring from his hand. He gave it to Haman, and he said, do what you need to do, and you can keep the money. It's all right. And as for those people, you do to them whatever you think is right. So the king's scribes were summoned to send out this message that they were going to kill all the Jews. And, uh, and so it was uh, letters were delivered to runners, and they sent them all out. Anyway... So they went off at top speed. And as for the king and Haman, when all that was done was done, they sat back and they, yes, you guessed it, they drank some more wine. But Shushan, the capital city, was getting very nervous because they knew that some of these politicians were loose cannons. Well, when Mordecai learned what had been done, he put on sackcloth and ashes and went around mourning and boohooing around outside the, the uh, courtyard. And, uh, but he didn't go inside there because he was not allowed to wear sackcloth inside a place like that. But Esther's maids and the eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, and she became very upset. So she sent this message to Mordecai, said, here's some clothes for you to put on and go talk to the king, but he wouldn't do it. So then Esther summoned one of the king's eunuchs who served her, and she ordered him to go to Mordecai and said, find out what is wrong with Mordecai. And so... That was when she learned about the plot to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. And, she, and Mordecai was warning her to go talk to the king. Well, this is what she said, and it was what we read a while ago. Her message to Mordecai was this. She said, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know full well that there's only one law for any man or woman who comes to the king in the inner court without an invitation. He or she will be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to him, indicating that he or she will be accepted and allowed to live. As for me, I've not been invited to come to the king for the last 30 days. That looked pretty bleak. Esther got a message from Mordecai, 
And this is kind of what he wrote. He said, don't imagine for a moment that just because you live in the king's house that you will be the only Jew to survive this attack. Oh, you can keep your mouth shut right now, but relief and rescue for the Jews will come over the horizon with you or without you. It won't come for you, though, because you and all of your family will die. Maybe it's no accident that you've become the queen. Could it be that you have come to where you are in the kingdom for a time just like this? And Esther listened. And so she sent this reply to Mordecai. She said, you go gather all the Jews you can find in Shushan. I want all of you, all of you to fast for me. No eating, no drinking for three days and nights. As for me, my maids and I will fast in the same way, and then I shall approach the king. An act that is against the law, hello. And if I die, I just die. And so Mordecai did exactly what she told him to do. And so then, three days of fasting were completed, Esther dressed up in her royal attire, and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace, right in front of the palace. And as for the king, he was sitting on his royal throne facing the palace, and when the king saw Esther standing in the palace, he was glad to see her. He held out the golden scepter for her to touch, and she did. And the queen said, the king, he must have been gaga about her anyway. You just kind of get that whenever you read what he says. He said, what do you want, Queen Esther? You know, you can tell your sugar daddy. Go on and ask for as much as, as half the kingdom, and I'll give it to you. Esther said, well, if it pleases the king, may the king, along with Haman, come today to a banquet which I have prepared for the king. Oh, she's tricky. So... The king turned to his aides and barked out an order, said, hurry up and get Haman so that we can do what Esther says. So the king and Haman came to the banquet and Easter prepared, that Esther prepared. They were, guess what, drinking their wine. And the king said to Esther, whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you. Whatever you want, it's yours. Up to half the kingdom, what do you want? Well, Esther replied this. This is what I ask for. This is what I request. If I have found favor with the king, if the king is pleased to do whatever I ask and whatever I request, <clears throat> may the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them tomorrow. And at that time, I will do as the king says and make my request. Now, he's, she's got him excited. What in the world is he going to do now? Haman left Esther's house and he was absolutely ebullient with joy and exhilaration. He could not believe it. He gets home and he starts telling everybody in his household about how great and how wonderful he is, how rich he is, how many children he has, and about how the king had honored him and how he had been promoted to a position in the kingdom that was higher than anyone but the king. And guess what? Esther had us over for dinner today and I'm coming back tomorrow at her request. And guess what? Who else is coming with the king besides himself? Moi. I am coming with him. Just the king and just I, we're going to be at Esther's house. Man, he felt like he was at the top of the heap. <laughs> Little did he know. And so, anyway, and so Queen Esther threw, threw the party <clears throat> and... Uh, but his, before he got through telling them going, about going to the first party, he was so excited about it, but then he finally said, but you know what? All the good things that they've done for me is nothing as long as I see that stinky little Jew, Mordecai, wandering around. She said, I don't like him. So 
what did his wife say? His wife and his friends said, well, why don't you have a gallows built 75 feet tall, and in the morning you can tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, and then you can go to the banquet with the king feeling happy. Well, that sounded good to Haman, and he had the gallows built before the day was over with. He got after it. Well, that night, the king was unable to sleep. All of these little things are happening and coming together. So he ordered that someone bring to him the book of records. In other words, he was thinking, I'm missing something. I'm forgetting about something. And so they were reading these records, and it came to the part where during the time of Mordecai, there was this, during, the t- during one time a few years ago, that these two guys that were supposed to protect the king and work as his bodyguards, they had tried to assassinate King Xerxes. Mordecai had tipped everyone off about the plot, and these guys were arrested and once again summarily hanged. And so the king said, well, what kind of an honor or recognition did we do for Mordecai because of that? The person said, nothing. So we're going to correct that. So the king said, who's in the palace court right now? And guess who had just walked in? It was Haman. And so Haman comes walking in there, so confident, so taken with himself. And king said, tell him to come in. And then the king said, Haman, what should be done for the man to whom the king wants to pay special honor? Well, once again, king Haman says, who would want to give special honor to anyone but me? And so he, but that wasn't the question that was asked. He said, what should be done? And so he starts going over this list. He says, first of all, have a royal garment brought out which the king himself has worn. Get a horse which the king has ridden and put a royal crown on the horse's head. Then hand the robe and horse over to one of the king's noblemen. Let them dress the man that the king wants to honor. Place him on the horse. Lead him around the city square shouting out before them, this is what is done for the man whom the king wants to specially honor. The king said, good, I like that. Hurry up and get the robe and the horse and do just what you described for Mordecai the Jew. You know, he's the one that sits out there at the palace gate. And don't leave out one detail of what I said. So Haman fetched the robe and the horse, and he put the robe on Mordecai and Mordecai on the horse, and he led them around the city square shouting, this is what is done for the man that the king wants to specially honor. After that was over with, Mordecai ran back to his, he returned to his place at palace gate, but Haman ran back home with his head covered like he had just lost his last friend or that his mother said she hated him, whatever. He told Zeresh and his wife and all his friends what had just happened. And listen to this. His advisors and his wife said this. She said, if Mordecai is a Jew and you have already begun to crumble in your plans against him, there's no way you're going to be able to defeat him. You're as good as dead right now. I mean, he was toast. While they were speaking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hustled Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. And so the king and Haman both came to Queen Esther's banquet. And after finishing the meal on this second day of the banquet, and while they were, yes, drinking their wine, the king said to Esther, Queen Esther, what is your request now? You can tell me, I'll give you whatever you ask for, even if you ask for half the kingdom. What do you want, sugar? So Queen Esther said, well, if the king is willing to do me a favor, 
if the king deems it good to do this, let my life be spared. That's my request. Let my people live. That's what I want. I say this because my people and I have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and exterminated. If we had merely been sold as slaves and housemaids, I would keep my mouth shut because the king should not be bothered with our minor problems. And then King Xerxes bellowed out at the queen. He said, who is it? Where is he? I want to know the crooked outfit that cooked up this scheme. <laughs> don't you know? Don't you know that Haman was starting to sweat? <laughs> Esther replied, the villain and the enemy is this rotten Haman. Haman sat there overwhelmed with shock. The king, probably already pretty well fueled up with wine, got up and stormed out to the, to the garden. Haman, meanwhile, stood there before Esther begging for his life because he saw that the king had pretty much sealed his fate. When the king returned from the palace garden in the room where they had been drinking wine, he found Haman now prostrate on the floor and groveling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king blurted out, will he now try to force himself on the queen when I just step out of the house for a moment? The words had hardly escaped the king's lips when the servants came and slipped a shroud over Haman's face. And Harbona, one of the eunuchs who served the king, said, by the way, Haman just built beside his house a gallows standing 75 feet tall. He made it for Mordecai. The king said, hang him on it. And once they hung Haman on the gallows he had erected for Mordecai, the king's rage subsided. Before the, the day was over with, King, king Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the estate of Haman, and the he was the adversary of the Jews. Sometime a little bit later, and wasn't much later, Esther again went to speak to the king. She fell at his feet, weeping and begging him to consider the evil of Haman, the Agagite, and to frustrate his plans. Remember, they had passed this law to kill all the Jews. And their laws back then in that empire could not be revoked. You couldn't say, no, we're going to drop that. What you could do, though, was you could pass another law or have another edict that went out that would nullify it. So what she asked for was, uh, she said, what I want is if you would, uh, allow my people to arm themselves and get ready for the battle that's going to take place. And that's exactly what he did. He allowed them to do that, to defend themselves. Uh, as a matter of fact, after all the shooting was done, there were like 75,000 Persians that were killed in the fighting that went on. And of course, this spread over a huge, huge kingdom. As a matter of fact, the people in the Persian kingdom began to think how much they really liked the Jews, and some of them were telling people that, oh, no, we're Jewish, we're Jewish. We have a little sandwich shop down the street. You know? and so, but anyway, and so they were encouraged to do that. Something, even the Gentiles wanted to be Jewish. You can, that's basically the story. You can see another thing. This began to be a day that was celebrated by the Jews and still is even today. But there's some lessons that we can learn from this. It's more than just a good story, although it's a really good story. But there are things that we can learn from it. I don't care who you are or where you're from, but I won't just tell you a few of them. Oh, goodness. It's time to quit, isn't it? All right. Okay. I'll go quick. 
One of the things we see here is how God preserves his people. Right after I got married, I was working for Central Freight Lines loading freight. And uh, Central Freight Lines at the Dallas dock had a lot of ministerial students working there. They had a, a shift that was, it was kind of a part-time shift where we could work about 25 to 30 hours a week and get you know, top pay just like everybody else did. And uh, there was one, one of the guys, there were two of the guys in my part of the, on my part of the dock that they were students at Southwest Assembly of God College. And one of them was Bob Campbell. And I know Bob and I were, you know, we were loading freight one night and he, he was already married. He knew I was going to be getting married in a couple of months. And, and we got to talk about how we got on the subject of having children. I do not know. But I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I just don't know if I want to have any children at all. And he said, well, why not? And I said, well, it's because this world is so wicked and so dangerous and scary. I said, I just hate to think about bringing a child into this world. And I remember what Bob told me. I never could forget it. He said, but you know, Joe, God has always had his people. <laughs> and that's the thing, you know, and that was the way it was with this. You know, you could have someone like Haman deciding that he wanted to exterminate all the Jews. He couldn't get rid of God's people. And we can have people that attack the church today and attack Christians today and, and ridicule Christians today. But I'm going to tell you, God's always had his people. And he isn't going to stop now. And we also see that God is the one that works behind the scenes. He does things, as we said before, that nobody ever notices. All of these people that we see in here, Mordecai, Haman, you know, <clears throat> King Xerxes, and all the people that were are mentioned in here, each one had some part to play, and they didn't even realize they were doing it. But God can bring about things that we, in ways that we don't always see. Sometimes, and you've probably had this happen in your life, something happened, and you began tracing it back as to what caused it, and it might have been some little thing years ago that if that hadn't happened, you wouldn't be where you are right now. And uh, God does that. Remember something. We may not always be able to see exactly what he's doing. But someday, I do believe that we're going to look back and we can think about all that he's done. Another thing is, is how God responds to his people's prayers. Notice Esther says to call upon my people to fast. That was going to involve praying. And then she says, and then we'll go from there. But this is a thing that we always talk about God responding to prayers and someone saying, well, I believe God answers prayers, but I think we talk more about prayer than we do pray. And, uh, you know, have you ever gone to a prayer meeting where people were telling about more people put on the prayer list? You know, like, remember, you know, Aunt Fanny, you know, She's got a problem with athlete's foot. Let's remember to pray for her. And just one little thing after another. We don't even think about it too much after that. Even whenever people start to pray, no one prays for Aunt Fanny. Because it, but it made you feel good to say just to pray for someone. But listen, God loves to hear you pray. He delights in the prayers of his people. And that's the thing that sometimes I don't think that we do as much as we should. I know one time I was at a pastor of one church, and, uh, and it was a church where God was moving among the people there, and uh, we'd had several people join that church. There was one friend of mine, he was a pastor at another church that, well, he wasn't doing too well, and their attendance was just going off. And he just told me, he said, what do you do to get your church to grow? And I said, well, we pray. And he laughed at me. 
laughed at me. How are we going to do God's work if we don't pray? I remember before uh, Brother Blake came, and uh, I know our pulpit committee here was having a bit of a hard time in getting any names at all. You know, and, it, and it, it didn't look good. And finally someone spoke up and said, well, why don't we just pray about this? And I don't remember how many, how many Wednesday nights in a row did we call in all the troops here and we all prayed together. Wednesday night after Wednesday night after Wednesday night. And I think we had <laughs> one resume and it was Blake Dover. And I think that the search committee, when they read the resume over, they said, well, this is what we've been looking for anyway. <laughs> you know, God can do things like that. Let's don't waste our time by not praying, okay? And then God's people don't fear death. We don't have to. That's what Esther said, and if I perish, I perish. In other words, bring it on. I get a little emotional on this because this has to do with one of my good old friends. He was... He was a, a member of the church where I was in Orange, tougher than a gallery backstop. I mean, he was tough. He, had, uh, he was a World War II veteran, Bronze Star recipient. After he got, and at one time before all of that, he was considered to be one of the meanest men in Orange County. He had been a bad dude, but God changed him and turned his life around and turned his life into something glorious. And uh, anyway... He became a pastor, and God sent him to churches that were bad, bad towns. I mean, I mean, it was, it was just like, you know, he went to churches where it was like it was the place where bad preachers went when they died. It was just terrible. And, uh, but God sent him to places like that, and he was able to straighten people out, sometimes like a crooked nail. He was a member of the church where I was pastor. He was retired by that time. He had a disease that was kind of like Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, he wasn't going to live to be an old man. I loved him, though. I mean, we were, we were like that. The one thing I liked about him so much was that if you asked him a question or about his opinion, he would tell you what he truly believed was right, not just what you, he thought you wanted to hear. Well... As I was, before I left, his, his health just continued to dwindle down. And, uh, oh, I said he was a Bronze Star recipient. I didn't even know that until he had died. He never talked about it. But I did find out why he got it. He carried a man across the bridge on the Rhine River under heavy fire. And uh, it was like he wasn't scared of what they could do. But that was just the kind of gay was. Anyway going back. But whenever I would see him in the hospitals, because it seemed like every time I turned around, someone said, well, Brother Earl is in the hospital again. Looks like he's not going to make it. And I would go see him, and we would pray, and we would talk a little bit, but we'd pray, and then I'd always tell him, and I didn't tell this to every man around, but he needed someone to tell him this every now and then. I said, I, I love you, old buddy. And he said, I love you too. It's going to be all right. And I moved up here, and then one day I got a call from one of the deacons at that church and he told me, he said, Earl Myers is in the hospital again and this time he's not going to go out under his own power. He's dying. He's dying right now. He said, I just thought you might like to know. You might want to call him. And so I did. And his voice sounded weak and it was not as loud as it used to be. 
But we talked for a while and we ended our phone conversation like we always did. I said, I love you, old buddy. And I was starting to choke up. And he said, he said, he had to know him, he said, I love you too. It'll be okay. And I could just tell by the sound of his voice, he knew that that was going to be our last conversation, this side of glory. We don't have to be afraid. We have a Savior who's the resurrection and the life. And he, we who believe in him, though we should die, yet shall we live. There's nothing that you can do to scare us. Let's pray. Now, our Lord, we thank you for examples that you have preserved for us in your word. We thank you for the strength that you give us under fire. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you bring joy into our lives and peace of mind. Lord, I pray that you would apply all of these truths to our heart today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.